Hello, this is Jeremy Patterson. Um, I'd just like to take this uh, moment here to make a couple of corrections in this sermon that you're about to listen to. Uh, there were a few things I said that were inaccurate, and I'd just like to go ahead and, uh, and again make those corrections here before, before you get into it. So uh, one of the things that I say here is that Acts is the largest book in the New Testament. Uh, that's just plain out wrong. Um, it does have, it's tied with Matthew for the uh, most chapters of any book in the New Testament with 28. Uh, but when it comes to words and the actual length of the book, uh, Luke has both Matthew and Acts beat. And Acts is actually shorter than Matthew. So Acts is the third largest book in the New Testament. And another uh, another mistake I made, it's along the same lines. I said that Paul wrote half of the New Testament, which is uh, not entirely accurate. When it comes to the number of books, Paul wrote uh, at least 13 books of the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, so he's close to half when it comes to that. But again, when it comes to words, the number of words, uh, Paul wrote about 28% of the New Testament. So I just wanted to clear those things up and want to apologize um, for being uh, not as cautious as I should be. So just take those corrections, ignore uh, when these uh, mistakes come up, and I'd appreciate it. Thank you very much, and enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Good morning. Our scripture reading uh, this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> this is the word of the true and living God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you 
you have called us, Lord, into an inheritance with the saints in light. Father, I pray that you'll be with us this morning as we are uh, opening up your word, opening up this book of Colossians. Father, I pray that you will grant me to speak clearly and, and powerfully and to be uh, a help to your people. And I pray that you'll open hearts and minds to see the truth that you have uh, for us in your word. Father, I pray that you'll help us to accept it with faith and to store it in our hearts, Lord, and to live it out and practice it in our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's good to be back up here this morning. Uh, what a privilege it is to be able to minister God's Word to His people. And I'm honored this morning uh, to begin our first uh, expository series in this new journey that we're on together as a church. Um, I want to begin, I want to begin by explaining a little bit more about what we should expect from this, this, this method of preaching, right? We've, we've said, we've mentioned it over and over, um, just what exactly is expository preaching, right? What's the difference between expository preaching and any other kind of preaching? And the, the simplest way that I can probably uh, explain it is by comparing it to uh, what is, is probably the most common way of preaching that we might experience in churches in our area uh, and on the internet and so forth. Um, most commonly in, in modern Southern Baptist churches and Lutheran churches and Methodist churches and even in your, your non-denominational churches, uh, in Sunday morning services you're likely to hear preachers deliver what are referred to as topical sermons. Okay, and topical sermons are, are just what it sounds like. They are sermons that are based on a certain topic. Uh, the preacher begins with a topic and then pulls in scriptures that are meant to show what the Bible has to say about that particular topic. All right, so two months ago, uh, I finished up a, a, a topical series. Right, the, the topic was God's order. Um, so topical sermons begin with a topic and explain what the Bible says about that topic. Expository sermons begin with the Bible and then explain what topic the Bible is speaking on in any given uh, section. So expo expository sermons are meant to expose, right? Expository, expose what God is communicating to us in whatever portion of his word is in focus. So, um, expository sermons, the expository method of preaching, it lets the Bible take it, take us where it will. It lets the Bible be the guide. We let it tell us what to preach instead of using it to preach what we want. Right. And again, the, the topical method is not always a bad thing. And I, I'm not saying that by any means. Um, and again, uh, there will be occasion for us to give uh, topical sermons again. I'm not saying that's never going to happen. But uh, what we've sort of decided together as elders to do is to take this expository approach as sort of the, the norm for what we're going to do up here. So um, it's about just digging into his word, digging into the word and drawing out of it the message that God intended to convey when he wrote it. Uh, there are several things that have to be taken into account in order to fully understand what any scripture 
or section of scripture is actually teaching, right? There's some things we always have to keep in mind when we're reading the word. Um, first, number one, we have to always be mindful and remember what the Bible is. What the Bible is. The Bible is the true word of the living God. It's the true word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired. Uh, the word inspire uh, means literally to breathe into. Right? Spire as in respirate. Right? Has to do with breathing. And in obviously means in. Right? So inspire, in breathe. But the Greek word there that's translated uh, as inspire in the NASB is theanustos. I think I mentioned this up here before. Theanustos. So you got theo as in God, like theology or theism. And then you've got Neustos, which is the P-N-E-U, like new, uh, like a pneumatic or pneumonia, which have, has to do with air or breathing. So uh, it's God-breathed is literally what, what that word means, God-breathed. So all Scripture is literally the word of God's mouth. And it's to be understood as a direct word from God when we read it. And the rest of the passage in 2 Timothy says that all of Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So it's all meant to sanctify us and equip us to live the Christian life. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what our word is. That's what the, this, this Bible is. So the Scriptures came from God speaking uh, through His people, from God using them to communicate the message that he has for the world. He inspires them to write his words. And everything, everything that he spoke in this way is found in the 66 books that make up our Bible. Right? There's nothing missing. Uh, everything that's supposed to be there is there. And there is nothing there that's not supposed to be there. Right? We have his sure and true and complete holy word to us right here. Right here. So, uh, taking an expository approach to preaching is simply assuming that God knows better than we do what we need to hear and learn and know from the scriptures. Right? We, we trust Him as the all wise and all loving and all knowing God, and we take what He says as He gave it to us. We let the Bible speak to us. So the expository method, uh, it prevents the preacher from over-preaching any pet doctrines, uh, and it ensures that no, no God-breathed doctrines uh, or truths are ignored. We take the truth as it comes. All right, so number two, the, the, the next thing we need to remember as we seek to truly understand what God is saying in the Scriptures is that the Bible, by and large, 
is written for us, but it's not written to us. It's written for us, but not to us. Now, um, don't, don't misunderstand me here. Right? I'm not saying that the Bible never has anything to say directly to us, right? That to God's people here today, that it never speaks directly to us, right? It does. It often does. What I am saying, uh, what I do mean when I say that, when, when these books were written, they had specific purposes and were delivered to specific peoples. Um, many books of scripture are, are written to address specific problems and issues the people of God were dealing with in the day that they were written. So, so what I'm getting at here is that uh, to accurately understand what God has written, to accurately understand his word, we need to understand it in its context. In its context. Right? No individual verse or passage or book or testament can be properly understood apart from every other verse in the Bible. We've got to take it all together. It has to be taken as a whole. And it can't be properly understood uh, without also taking into account the historical context. Right? So to properly understand any portion of Scripture, uh, we need to first be asking questions like, uh, who, was, who was the human author? Who wrote it? When was it written? Who was it written to? Where does it fit in with the rest of the Bible? Right? And the third thing, the third thing we need to remember, uh, number three, when we're seeking to get at an accurate understanding of the God-breathed scriptures, is that as much as we may hate to hear it, the original languages and the study of the ancient texts and manuscripts that have been used to translate the scriptures into what we have today are important. It's important. We need to understand that, that we can indeed, we can trust God to illuminate the scriptures for us through the Holy Spirit. Right? That's the only way that we can truly understand uh, what, what, what he is saying, what any scripture means is by his spirit. So I'm not saying that we can't know what God is saying in his word unless we learn Greek and Hebrew. Right, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. Uh, many of you have probably wondered about all of the many different English translations of the Bible that are available to us. Right? NIV, ESV, KJV, NASB, NLT, and on and on and on goes the alphabet soup of Bible versions. Right? So how do we know which one is best? How do we know which one is best? How do we know which one is right? And the answer is actually not that complicated. Right? Whichever one gets us closest to what the authors originally wrote. Whichever version or combination of versions get us closer to what the authors originally wrote. You see, um, the, the NASB or the NLT or whatever are not God-breathed. They're not God-breathed. In themselves, the original writings of Scripture that came from the pens of Paul and Luke and Moses and David, those words, those words 
are the perfect God-breathed word of truth. The words written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. There is no perfect translation or version of Scripture. And that's because all of them, all of our modern versions and even the much uh, much older versions like the King James or the Geneva Bible or the Latin Vulgate or whatever, these old medieval Bibles, they have all, all of them have used imperfect means to try to get at perfect truth. Right? You have men doing scholarship, using their brains that God gave them, using the, the manuscripts and the books that they have access to, to try to put it together for us, to, to try to get us there. So I, I won't get into the science of the work that, that has been and is still being done by scholars to get as close as possible to the exact words and meanings that the Spirit gave to the apostles and prophets. But I, I, I don't want to wander too far from my point, right? So which is this. Um, even though, even though we can find the truth that God wants for us to have in our modern English versions of the Bible, it's there, right? It's there. It's, it's what we need, um, is there, but there are going to be places in each of them where to, to get a proper understanding of what exactly is going on in any given scripture, we need to be able to get an understanding of how it was worded in New Testament Greek or in Old Testament Hebrew and occasionally Aramaic, right? That's going to be helpful. We need that. Um, just like we saw earlier in the, in the Theonoustos, right? Theonoustos. Uh, knowing the Greek there, it, it gives us a little something extra, right? We can go from inspired to God-breathed. That's what the Greek can help us with. So, um, just gives us a little bit deeper insight, and we should always be looking for that uh, in the in the Word, in our reading and study of the Word. So, um, we also, we also, uh, on top of that, we occasionally need an explanation of what was going on with the ancient copies of these original scriptures uh, that our modern versions were inspired from. Right? No, knowing this can also uh, can help us to get closer to the original writings. Uh, of the inspired authors of Scripture, and that, that's called textual criticism. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't let these things discourage or confuse us. There's no need for that, all right? God is sovereign over it all, and He will indeed be sure that His people are able to know and understand all that He wants to show us. We're going to get it. There's no danger of us missing something extremely important about God that He really wants us to know but we can't get it because we don't know Greek, okay? Um, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's word will not return void. There is no chance of God's word not accomplishing all that he wants for it to accomplish, both in the world and in his people. Right? We can trust him in that. But we must also recognize that God wants us to put forth effort in seeking after him. 
There are some things he buried. There are some things he hid. Uh, we have to dig. We have to put in the work. And this, what I'm talking about, is part of that. It might seem a little intimidating now, uh, but I think eventually you'll see that this stuff, it isn't as difficult as you think. So, uh, with those things in mind, I'd like to go into a little, uh, a little background information, a little context, um, before we dive into the text of the book that we've chosen to begin this expository journey, and that's the book of Colossians. So let's talk about Colossians. Colossians is an epistle. An epistle, which simply means that it's a letter. Um, as are so many of the other books of the New Testament. Of the, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 21 of them are letters. Letters that somebody wrote to somebody else. Uh, written from apostles and other leaders of the ancient church uh, to, to churches and to individual believers um, in, in these first century Christian circles. And uh, to begin with our, our background information, I'd like to spend some time talking about the human author of this epistle, of this letter. Who wrote it? All right, this letter to the church in the city of Colossae. So uh, let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to focus today uh, in our exposition on the very first word of the first verse of the first chapter of this book. Paul. Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Um, so the writer of this letter identifies himself as the apostle Paul. And I, I, I want to spend some time here just talking about him because I'm not going to take uh, for granted, I'm not going to assume that everybody in the sound of my voice uh, has a full understanding or appreciation of just exactly who Paul was. Right, Paul wrote at least 13, at least 13 of the 21 epistles in the New Testament. So there are 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of them are letters. Paul wrote 13 of those 21 letters. Um, and there's actually a pretty good argument that he was the source of the book of Hebrews as well, which would make that 14, 14 books of the New Testament written by Paul. So to put it another way, Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. He wrote about half uh, of, of this holy and inspired word of God. God used him to do that. Um, and half of the New Testament book of Acts, which is the largest book in the New Testament, half of that book is about Paul's life and his ministry. He's talking. Luke's writing about who Paul was and what he did. So he is probably he is probably the most quoted, most read, and most influential writer in the history of the world. That's who we're talking about here. Uh, with with Moses being a, a very close second, right? He was unquestionably, unquestionably. He was a man who was mightily used by God to reveal the truth of who God is to his children. So, who, who was Paul? Right? Who was Paul? Where did he come from? And where does this, this beautiful portion of God's word, uh, his letter to the Colossians, fit into his life? 
Well, uh, let's go there. All right. First of all, uh, Paul was not always called Paul in Scripture. Right when we first meet him in the Book of Acts, uh, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, refers to him as Saul. Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was an ancient city that's located in the eastern part of what is now the nation of Turkey. Right over there in the the uh, Asia Minor region. Hundreds of miles northwest of Israel. Saul was a Jew. He, he was of Jewish heritage. Uh, but he came from a line of Jews that had been scattered abroad. Right? They'd been scattered out all across the Roman Empire, um, outside of Israel, away from Israel, uh, into predominantly Greek-influenced uh, lands. This is where Paul was born. Um and we're not sure exactly how or when it happens, but at some point in his childhood, Saul and his family move from Tarsus to Jerusalem when Paul's a kid. So just to give a little perspective on the timeline here, Saul was probably born sometime between 5 and 10 AD, 5 and 10 AD, which would make him 10 to 15 years younger than Jesus. Right, so when Saul moved to Jerusalem, Jesus would have been in his 20s uh, working as a carpenter in Nazareth. And Saul would have probably been uh, living in Jerusalem during the time of Christ's ministry there and his crucifixion. So in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Acts 22, 3, Saul tells the Jewish leaders, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and he says this, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, zealous for God, just as you all are today. Uh, so the Gamaliel that's spoken of here was probably the most famous rabbi of first century Judaism. He was a, a renowned figure in the religion. Very well-known rabbi, very well-known teacher. And Saul was an excellent student, an excellent student. He tells the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 14 of that book. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. I was top of my class, being more extremely zealous, there's that word again, for my ancestral traditions. Right, so Saul was a, a huge intellect, uh, very smart, very educated, uh, educated in both Greek and Hebrew, theology, philosophy, uh, and history. He, he knew it all about these, the, the, these aspects of these cultures. And on top of all that, on top of being this, this scholar that he was, he was also a tradesman. Right, so at some point in his life, alongside his intense studies and his prodigious work, as an apostle of Christ, he found the time to master the trade that his hometown of Tarsus was famous for. Paul was a, he was a tent maker, a tent maker. He made tents. <clears throat> and this, uh, this becomes important during his mission work because he would often use this trade, this tent making to fund his travels. Uh, rather than taking money from the people that he was ministering to, even though he did acknowledge uh, that he had every right to be compensated by them for his work in ministering the gospel. But he chose instead to make and sell these tents uh, to support himself. So 
um, under Gamaliel's teaching and because of his zeal, because of Saul's zeal for this, uh, this rabbinic Judaism, the traditions of his fathers, as he says, Saul became a highly respected and devout Pharisee. Saul was a Pharisee. Right? We all know about the Pharisees, right? We all uh, will probably recognize the term Pharisee from the accounts of Jesus' ministry in the, in the Gospels. Right? The Pharisees were the bad guys in the Gospels. They were the, they were the strictest and most powerful sect of Judaism in the first century. That, that's, they, were, they were the leaders uh, in the Jewish religion in Jerusalem in the first century. And Jesus was often uh, found chiding and chastising these Pharisees for their self-righteousness and for their, their heartless application of the law, as well as uh, for putting their own man-made traditions and rules on the same level as God's laws. Right? This is, these were, uh, Jesus had harsh words for these Pharisees often because of these things. So, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we, we see Paul listing out, listing off his, his Jewish bona fides. Um, he says he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, again, there's that word, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This is Saul, Hebrew of Hebrews. Saul was a, Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? This is who he was. And he describes himself as being very zealous over and over again. He describes his zeal, his zeal, uh, being zealous for his religion. Right? To be zealous means to be extremely passionate and forceful about a belief, right? Zeal, zeal is not always a bad thing. Zeal can be a very good thing. Um, the problem with Saul's zeal, with his, his Pharisaic zeal, was that it was not in accordance with the truth. He had a zeal not in accordance with the truth. He was passionate about the wrong things. He, he had a misunderstanding uh, about who the God that he was supposed to be worshiping and serving actually was. Right? And this zeal, not according to knowledge, led him to persecute those who were actually following the true God of Judaism, right? the, the church of Christ. Saul put all of his energy, all of his energy and his passion and his zeal into, uh, into trying to adhere uh, to and enforce the letter of the law. Right? That's what he was all about. Um, and when I say the letter of the law, what I mean there is, I mean, his focus was on outwardly following the rules. That's what, uh, that, that's what they did. That's what Pharisees uh, did, outwardly following the rules. But he hadn't yet understood. He didn't understand the truth that Jesus taught about God. Right, what Jesus taught, that true obedience to the law could only come from a changed heart and that that change could only come through Christ. Uh, see, to, to him, to Saul, 
and and to most of the other Pharisees, acceptance by God came through strict adherence to the law, outward obedience to the law. Um, they thought that you could earn acceptance by God. And Christ and his Christians taught something completely different. Right? They were teaching that to be accepted by God, you first had to accept that Christ earned that acceptance for us. We're not accepted by God in ourselves. We're accepted by God because of what Christ has done. No one could ever perfectly obey the law. And that's the standard that God gives. He gives perfect obedience, not mostly, not 99%. He demands perfect obedience to the law. People can't do that. Um, but what Christ taught and what Christians teach and what we believe is that it's only by placing our faith in Christ's perfect obedience to the law and in his perfect sacrifice in our place that anyone can ever be accepted by God. Right? And this teaching, this teaching that these Christians were going around Jerusalem uh, spreading in the streets was blasphemy to the Pharisees. It was blasphemy. It was like cursing God to them. It was putting Christ in the place of the law and in the place of God. And the law says that blasphemy against God deserves death. So because Saul was zealous for the traditions of the Pharisees, he hated Christians. He hated them. And he made it his mission to see these blasphemies punished. So, uh, we first actually meet Saul in the scriptures in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, there was a servant of Christ named Stephen. Uh, Stephen had been dragged before the high council of the Jews in Jerusalem because he was preaching Christ in the city. So he's dragged before this, this council, the Sanhedrin, and after, uh, after he had taken these Jewish leaders to task for their unbelief, and the true work that God had done through Christ. After he tells them what he really thinks about them, uh, these Jews drag him outside the city, outside the city walls, and they stone him to death. They throw rocks at him until he's dead. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, uh, we're told that there was a young man named Saul present at this stoning. And Saul was looking after the coats that the men had taken off so that they wouldn't get them all dirty and, and sweaty as they threw their stones and murdered a servant of Christ. And then in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Hearty agreement. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Saul became so zealous in his persecution of Christians that he went out into all of Israel, hunting them down and imprisoning the followers of Christ 
uh, many of whom would end up meeting the same fate as Stephen or similar. But he wasn't content with simply uh, purging the Christians from Israel. Right. He actually, he goes to seek permission to travel to the Syrian city of Damascus to hunt down and arrest the Christians in that city. So let's just read. Let's read the account of what happened to him there. Uh, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I hope most of us know this story. Um, but it's good to be reminded. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is the early way of referring to Christianity, uh, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into the city, into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's saying, Lord, I'm scared. If I go there, he's going to arrest me too and drag me off. But the Lord said to him, Go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. I love that last part. He got up and got baptized before he even ate, hadn't eaten in three days. And then the scriptures say, after this, that he immediately, immediately began to boldly and loudly and very publicly proclaim Christ in Damascus. And then he, he went on from there, and he boldly and loudly and very publicly proclaimed Christ everywhere, everywhere that he went for the rest of his life. 
for the rest of his life. His eyes had been opened. His eyes had been opened. He once was blind, but now he sees. He went from being a man with a zeal based on a false understanding of God, of who he was and what he required of people, uh, a zeal that led him to murder and destruction, to being a man with a zeal for the truth, with an overwhelming uh, passion for the truth, one who would give up his reputation, his health, his freedom, and his very life for the cause of Christ. One uh, a man who said that all of that, all of those things, all of the work and the study and the recognition and the standing that he had amongst the Pharisees before his conversion, all of that, he says in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 8, that it is all scubalon. Scubalon compared to being in Christ. So here's, here's another place where knowing the Greek adds a little something extra. Right, so the, the NASB translates the word scubalon as rubbish, as rubbish. Uh, but it actually, it means dung. It means dung. He considered it all dung. Everything that he had before Christ, everything that he worked for, uh, compared to the joy of being in Christ was, was dung, was scubalon. Um, thank God. Thank God for the work, for the work that he did in Paul. Right. Thank God for, for opening this man's eyes. Thank God for filling him with his spirit and bringing forth this word, this book of Colossians and all of his other works for us. Thank God. All right, so the, the rest of the book of Acts is an account of Paul's ministry and mission and the hardships that he suffered along the way. And just as Paul was not content to persecute Christians in Israel only, he wasn't, he wasn't content to just stay in Israel and persecute, right? But he sought them out in the Gentile nations as well. He didn't preach Christ in Israel only either, right? The Lord commissioned him to go out as an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, so he begins to travel throughout all the Roman world, preaching Christ, setting up churches in cities all across Asia Minor uh, and probably even into Europe. And he'd write letters to the churches, um, contradicting false teaching, uh, teaching about what it means to be a Christian, and giving practical advice on how to live the Christian life. Right? He wrote letters to churches that he had planted, and he wrote letters to churches that he'd never visited. Right? He, he discipled and encouraged these early Christians, both in person and through his writings, uh, before finally uh, being murdered for his faith in the city of Rome. And one of the churches that he wrote to was in a city called Colossae. Uh, that's what this letter is. So Paul, um, Paul probably wrote his letter to the Colossians while he was a prisoner in Rome, while he was locked up on house arrest in Rome. Um, but there are also there are reasonable arguments that can be made that he wrote it as a prisoner in Ephesus, right? We can't really know for sure, and it doesn't really matter for what we're talking about. Um, but taking into account that either of these arguments could be true, right? If he wrote it in Rome, then he wrote it uh, in the early 60s AD, you know, somewhere around 30 years after Christ's crucifixion. If he wrote it in Ephesus, it was in the early 50s, about 10 years earlier, right? So 
Doesn't change what the book says. Um, doesn't make any difference for our purposes either way. But we do know what is important. We know that it, he wrote the book of Colossians from prison somewhere. We know he was in prison when he wrote this book because in chapter 4, verse 3 of Colossians, he says uh, that at the time of his writing this letter, he had been imprisoned for speaking forth the mystery of Christ. That's what he says. I, I'm imprisoned for speaking forth the mystery of Christ. Um, right, so as, as I mentioned earlier, Paul faced many hardships, many hardships in his service to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, he recounts some of these hardships that he endured in his ministry. He says he has endured far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, in the ocean. Right? I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches, right? Who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? This is what Paul endured every day of his life for the ministry of Christ, for what he did. I think it's important for us to see too that he didn't do this in his own power. He says in this letter to the Colossians, he says that he labors, he labors by the strength that, that Christ is mightily working in him. He labors in the strength of Christ. So, along with all these trials, we see that he was imprisoned many times. Many imprisonments. And even when he was chained in a cell, he never lost his zeal for ministry. He never stopped. He never lost his zeal for Christ. He didn't let chains keep him from preaching Christ and encouraging the church. He wrote five of his 13 books of the New Testament from imprisonment somewhere. And Colossians was one of them. All right, now, who were the Colossians? And why was Paul writing to them specifically? Uh, Colossae was another city in Asia Minor, which is in the nation that we know as Turkey today, right? It wasn't very far from uh, the city of Tarsus where Paul was born. And it was very similar to the city of Paul's birth in a lot of ways. It was, it was a, a predominantly Gentile city, right? Predominantly Gentile, predominantly Greek-influenced city. Uh, there were Jews there, as there were in cities all throughout Asia Minor at the time. But Colossae was mostly inhabited by non-Jews and was heavily influenced by Greek culture and thought. Uh, most of the people there worshipped Greek gods like Zeus and Artemis. And there even, uh, there's even evidence that some Egyptian gods were worshipped there as well. Pagan city, um, like all cities outside of Israel were at that time. But it also, it, again, it had a settled Jewish presence there too. And so that's Colossae. What about the church there? What about the church in Colossae? 
Um, well, we know that uh, that Paul planted or visited many churches in the area surrounding Colossae. But uh, this letter that he wrote to the Colossian church, um, it seems to indicate that at the time of his writing anyway, he had never been there. Right? He'd never been there in person. He speaks uh, here of, of only of having heard. He says, I heard of your faith and your love for the saints. Um, and so that kind of leads us to believe that he had not personally witnessed it. And in chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians, he says he wants them to know how great a struggle he has on their behalf. Uh, for those who are at Laodicea, which was a city that neighbored Colossae, and for all those other people who have not personally seen my face. That's what he says. So Paul had never visited the church there. Um, and it's important for us, just really quickly, that when I'm saying he never visited the church there, right? Or uh, when I say the church at Colossae, and when Paul says it, we're not talking about a building, right? I'm not talking about like he never walked in the church building there. Um, when the New Testament uses the term church, it's always referring to people. And, and these were people, uh, for the most part, that Paul had never met, right? He, he didn't plant the church at Colossae. He didn't plant the church. Um, but he does. He tells us who did. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7, Paul mentions that uh, the saints in Colossae had heard the gospel and understood the truth through the teaching of a man named Epaphras. Epaphras. Um, and Paul describes him as being one of them. It's like he's one of you. He's a Colossian. And he also uh, commends Epaphras as his fellow laborer and a faithful servant in Christ. Um, and he mentions him twice in this letter and once in his letter to another saint in Colossae, another Colossian. This guy's name was Philemon. Philemon. Right? So we all recognize that name. The, the letter to Philemon is another one of Paul's letters that we find in our New Testament. Philemon was a Colossian too. Um, he was a Christian that Paul knew. So he didn't know some of the people there, a handful, um, but he had never been uh, presented himself to the church. So uh, when we compare what Paul wrote in the book of Colossians and what he wrote in the book of uh, Philemon, it becomes obvious that he probably wrote them both and had them both delivered at the same time. I mean, probably one after the other. And he sent them both. He wrote both the letters and sent, uh, sent them with two of his ministry partners, who he mentions here as well, a guy named Tychicus and another guy named Onesimus. And it's, it's possible he, Timothy joined them as well. But they're the ones he sends to deliver this letter, uh, this in uh, Philemon, to the church in Colossae. Um, and in his letter to Philemon, he mentions that Epaphras, Epaphras was not only his fellow laborer in the Lord, but was also his fellow prisoner. So this Epaphras is a Colossian, uh, planted the church in Colossae, you know, preached the gospel to them, got the church going, and then he ends up in Rome or Ephesus, wherever it might be, getting locked up with Paul. Right? They were both locked up in the same prison at the same time, presumably for the same crime, right? preaching Christ. Um, so, this is, Epaphras is sort of like Paul's source for what's going on in Colossae. Um, so, why is Paul writing the letter? Why does he choose to send this letter to the Colossians? Right, it's for a, a few different reasons. Right? Uh, one, one is that he wants to encourage them in Christ. 
He just wants to encourage them. We see this in all his letters. Right? He wants to, to commend them for the good reports he's heard about them. He also wants to tell them that he's praying for them. Right? So his, his friend and his brother Epaphras had told him about the faith and love of the Christians in Colossae, and Paul wants to reassure them and let them know, hey, me and my friends are praying for you. We've heard about what Christ is doing in you. You know, uh, we're, we're thankful to God for what he's doing in you. Keep up the good work. Right? So this is what we see throughout the first half of the first chapter of Colossians. Okay. Another reason, another reason he's writing is he's actually, he's using this letter uh, to request prayer from them. He, it's a prayer request, right, for his ministry and, and for the growth of the gospel in general. He's asking them to partner with him, to partner with him in the spread of the gospel. Uh, we see this in chapter 4, verse, uh, verses 2 through 6. Trey actually read this before we prayed this morning. He writes, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So he wants them to be praying for him, right? Uh, devote yourselves to prayer, pray for me, uh, that God will bless him with opportunities to share the word, right? And that, and that he'll uh, speak it clearly. And then he encourages them to be sharing the word themselves, right? And he exhorts them to, con to conduct themselves well uh, and, and to speak with grace as they preach the truth of Christ. Um, so it's an encouragement in the gospel, in the spread of the gospel, and a prayer request. And the last purpose that I'm going to mention, which is what most of the letter is focused on. It's the same purpose as so many of the other epistles in the New Testament. And that is, uh, it's to warn against and refute false teaching. It's to warn against and refute false teaching. Right, so after, uh, after the birth of the church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the gospel begins to just spread wildly all across Judea and into the neighboring uh, provinces. Uh, and many people, many people were converted to what was basically a, a brand new religion. It's a brand new thing. Now, God was gracious uh, to guard the truth in the hearts of those who belong to him. But the fact that Christianity was so new and that it was flowing forth into lands and cultures that had worshipped and thought in certain ways for so long, for thousands of years, it was only natural that these false systems of thought and worship were constantly being mixed in with Christian teachings. And I'm not just talking about like the pagan worship of the Greek and Egyptian gods here. One of the biggest, the biggest threats to the truth of the new covenant in Christ came from not properly understanding its relationship to old covenant worship. Right? So the problem was asking the question, what has changed and what remains of Jewish practice in Christianity? How Jewish are Christians supposed to be? 
So this was probably the greatest and most dangerous source of false teaching in the church during the time of the New Testament writers. Right, we see this probably mentioned more um, in, in the New Testament than, than any other. Right, and the men who promoted this false teaching, uh, known as the Judaizers, right, Paul calls them Judaizers. They're described as, as great enemies to the gospel, uh, to the gospel of Christ. And this is what was going on in Colossae. Right? Um, it was a heavy influence by these Judaizers. Uh, and it was actually, it was also possibly sort of a double threat, right, between the, the, the false teaching of the Judaizers and maybe bringing in some of the pagan stuff too, right, because it was a majority pagan city. Uh, but we can gather from the, the book here and from what Paul says in it that this, uh, this, this false understanding of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was a big part of the problem here. So, um, Epaphras had warned Paul that the church in Colossae was in danger of these false teachers or from these false teachers. He, now, he gave them a good report. Hey, they're, they're growing in faith and love, but there are these guys there and they're starting to listen to them. Right? They're telling lies. They're teaching these false things. Uh, so Paul gets this warning from Epaphras of the dangers, and then Paul does what he does. Paul just goes to war. He goes to war with his pen and with his prayers against what he calls in this book the philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Right? This false teaching that is threatening the knowledge and practice of the truth of Christ in the Colossian church. And one of the main tactics, one of the main tactics that Paul uses to do this in his letter to the Colossians, one of the main themes of this letter is what makes Colossians one of the most beautiful and powerful books in all of Scripture. Uh, Paul contradicts and argues against these false teachings by teaching the truth about the exalted Christ. The truth about the exalted Christ. Christ in all of his perfection and holiness. Christ in all things and above all things. Christ in them and they in him. Christ is the only source of true wisdom and power unto godliness. Christ is the only hope of a dying world. Paul preaches Christ in this letter so powerfully and exalts him so highly that this is considered by many to contain the highest Christology of any of Paul's letters. Christology is the study of who Christ is, right? His nature and his power and his work. If you miss everything else in this series, if you miss everything else in this series, look for this thing, right? Look to see the exalted Christ in Paul's letter to the Colossians. This, this is what Paul does to help the Colossians guard against the false teachings about who Christ is and just how uh, they are to know and serve him in truth, right? He, he, he blasts them with the glorious truth of who Christ really is and of what he has really come to do, right? He teaches the reality of the Christian life by teaching the reality of the glories of Christ. He teaches that Christ is the Christian life. So it's, it's, been, uh, it's been said that to be able to recognize a counterfeit you don't need to study all of the possible counterfeits out there. You just need to study the real thing. And you need to know it and understand it so well that when you're presented with anything else, your alarm bells will start going off. 
Right? This, this isn't real. This isn't real. This is garbage. This is scubalon. Right? The real thing, the real thing is much higher. The real thing is much more precious. I can tell the real thing. I know the real thing. So I'll, I'll close with an example of this high Christology from this book. Um, hold, hold tightly to this. I pray, I pray that we will all yearn for more of this, uh, for more understanding of this language and these expressions of exaltation of our glorious King Jesus as we work through this book. So Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, reconciling all things, whether heaven, things on earth, or things in heaven. Um, amen. Let's pray. Father God, help us to see Christ, Lord. Help us to know, know him and love him. Help us to see his glory. Help us to understand the truth of who he is. Help us to gather it from your word, Lord, to, to, to understand your word. Please just guide us as we work our way through this sacred book of Scripture, this, this letter to the Colossians, Lord. Help us to see the truth you have for us there. Help us to, to, to hold tightly to it, Lord. Help us to learn it and know it so well, to see Christ so clearly, Father, than we're, when we're presented with anything masquerading as truth, with any lie, Father, with any elementary, elemental uh, principle or tradition of man, Father, that we will we'll recognize it as what it is right away, that we'll see it as, as, as garbage, that we'll discard it, and that we'll cling tightly to the truth. Lord, be gracious to us in this way as we proceed. Uh, Father, help us. We need you. We need your spirit at work in us. Father, we can't do any of these things without your power working mightily in us. Uh, thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.